The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. So we've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts, and today the next passage we come to is Acts 19. 21 through 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. But some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. 
but we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. May God bless the reading of his word. Very good. Let's pray. Father, we understand from Hebrews 4 that your word is living and active. So may it be living and active in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When most of us think of the Salvation Army, we usually think of various thrift stores around the city and bell ringers during Christmas time. And overall, an organization for the most part that isn't all that different than many of the other charities that exist. Yet back in the 1800s, the Salvation Army was a lot more controversial than it is today. It was started in London by William and Catherine Booth in order to reach out to alcoholics, gamblers, and prostitutes and lead them to faith in Jesus. And the organization was very outspoken in their desire to wage war against the sins that plagued society. Not only did they adopt the militaristic name, Salvation Army, and structure themselves like an army with generals and colonels and all the other ranks of an army right on down to the ordinary soldiers, they also even went on marches in protest of the evils that they saw in society. And they began to really get significant traction, expanding rapidly throughout the nation of Great Britain and even throughout the rest of the world. In fact, they were having such an impact that surprisingly strong opposition soon arose against them. I see as a result of the Salvation Army's reform efforts, the owners of bars and brothels across the nation were losing a lot of money. And so these businessmen whose bottom line was being affected organized themselves into what eventually became known as the Skeleton Army which was formed for the express purpose of mocking the Salvation Army and doing whatever they could to disrupt the Salvation Army's efforts. So they adopted various symbols, some of which you can see on the flag there, the skulls and crossbones, and and they also often used pictures of monkeys and rats and even the devil. Uh, One common tactic they employed was to disrupt the Salvation Army's meetings and marches by doing things like shouting and banging drums and even, at times, physically assaulting the members of the Salvation Army. They would throw various projectiles at them, like rotten eggs and dead rats, interestingly enough, and even rocks at them. Uh, In fact, there are several recorded occasions in which uh, Salvation Army members died as a result of injuries sustained during these attacks. And there were also numerous instances in which these confrontations escalated into full-fledged riots by the skeleton army. For example, in one town named Worthing, over 4,000 members of the skeleton army rioted in opposition to the Salvation Army's reform efforts. Uh, Several months later in that same town, 
a skeleton army mob chased a large group of Salvation Army members back to their barracks and then tried to burn the place down with the Salvation Army folks inside of it. And uh, surprisingly, the police didn't even often do uh, very much to help the Salvation Army either. Uh, Many local politicians and police leaders tried to uh, deny that these things were taking place, and uh, other times they would simply say it was outside of their jurisdiction to deal with it. Uh, Thankfully, though, toward the end of the 1800s, the skeleton army eventually faded away. Yet as we're going to see in our main passage of Scripture this morning, what happened between the Salvation Army and the Skeleton Army in the 1800s actually wasn't anything new. It was simply one particularly notable example of the same basic reality we find at work in our main passage of Acts 19, 21 through 41. And that reality is this, that the gospel is a radical message that produces radical change that often provokes radical opposition. That's the main idea of this passage. The gospel is a radical message that produces radical change that often provokes radical opposition. Now, the context here is that Paul's in the city of Ephesus preaching the gospel and seeing incredible things happen. For example, look back at what we read uh, in verses 18 through 20. This is from the previous passage that we looked at last week. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So as you can see, there was a rather significant spiritual awakening taking place in Ephesus. Even those who were steeped in the occult and made their living from the magic arts came to faith in Jesus in droves. They even had a good old-fashioned book burning uh, where they brought their magical books of occult practices worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Right Last week we said that's approximately $6 million in today's currency and publicly burned them. And by the way, that's what genuine spiritual awakening looks like. Not necessarily a book burning per se, but an awakening to the heinousness of sin and a wholehearted determination to abandon sinful habits and practices. That's what marks a a spiritual awakening as much as anything. You know, it's not just about having some sort of mountaintop spiritual experience, right? That's one component we often find in awakenings, but by no means is it all that's involved. Any genuine awakening involves real and radical repentance over the, uh, from the deepest rooted sins that people are holding on to. In fact, that might even be the most reliable indicator there is of how genuine an awakening is. Because understand that exhilarating emotions can come from a lot of things and are often mistaken to be from the Holy Spirit when, in fact, at times, they might just be the result of someone getting caught up in the moment. And yet, 
Repentance, though, is a much more reliable indicator that something genuine is happening, especially when that repentance is seen in a changed pattern of life. And what we see here in these verses is a great illustration of that. It's a wholehearted repudiation of the sinful practices where someone seeks to eliminate not just the practices themselves, but also anything that might leave the door open to those things in the future. We might say burning the bridges to sin. That's what repentance is, and that's what we see here in this passage. And then moving along in the text, after a brief note in verses 21 and 22 about Paul's travel plans and his dispatch of some of his companions to Macedonia, the account of events in Ephesus picks up again in verse 23. It says, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the wet. Now, pause right there for a moment. Not only is that phrase, no little disturbance, a great title for today's message, it's also a massive understatement, as we're going to see in the subsequent verses. And this disturbance is said to be concerning the way. The way there, notice the capital W, is a phrase utilized numerous times in the book of Acts to refer to Christianity, probably stemming from Jesus' statement in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. We then learn in verses 24 and following that this disturbance is instigated by a man named Demetrius. We're told that Demetrius is a silversmith who made silver shrines to the pagan goddess Artemis. Uh, a little background here. Even though people throughout the Roman Empire worshipped Artemis, uh, the city of Ephesus was, I guess you could call it, the epicenter of Artemis worship because it was home to the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And at that time, actually the largest building in the world, four times as large as the Parthenon. Uh, that was pretty remarkable to me when I first read it, so I actually looked it up in another source just to be sure about it, but four times as large as the Parthenon, this temple to Ephesus. And so you can imagine how important the worship uh, of Artemis was to the city's economy. And that uh, included this annual festival to Artemis that they had each spring where countless people would flock to the city of Ephesus in order to, to celebrate this festival. So it was a pretty key part of the local economy, and especially for certain industries that uh, had the, you know, the making and selling of various Artemis paraphernalia, such as the shrines that Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen made. Uh, these shrines would have been sold to people to display in their homes, as well as perhaps to offer to the goddess at her temple. And that lucrative industry is being threatened by Paul's missionary activities. And so Demetrius, who seems to be, I guess we could call him the president of the local silversmith labor union, decides he's had enough. And so he gathers together his fellow craftsmen and gets them all riled up. And he's very clever in the way he does it. He mentions the economic impact that Paul's ministry is having, but then moves very quickly on to lament 
in verse 27, that the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and deposed of her magnificence. I'm sure he really cares a lot about Artemis and her honor. You know, it kind of reminds me of, you know, those signs that they have in, in hotel bathrooms, you know, where they invite you to help them reduce water usage and save the planet by hanging up your towel so that they don't have to change it out each time, right? And even though these signs are written in a way that tries to communicate very sincerely their desire for the, and their concern for the environment, it's at the same time quite, uh, quite incredible that this amazing concern for the environment happens to co- just coincide very well with what is financially advantageous for the hotel as well. So I wonder whether there's a similar kind of coincidence going on here with the deep concerns that Demetrius expresses for the worship and prestige of Artemis. Nevertheless, his speech to his fellow craftsmen proves very effective, and he's able to whip them up into quite the frenzy. Yet we understand that ultimately, at the root of all of this commotion and the chaos that's about to follow is the greed of Demetrius and his associates. As Demetrius himself admits in verse 25, it's from this business of selling shrines to Artemis that we have our wealth. That's the underlying motivation. What we see playing out in these verses is exactly what Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, 24, where he says that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And we see how true that is in Acts 19, where Demetrius and his associates are flipping out over the way Paul's ministry is cutting into their profits. It's also hard not to think of Matthew 16, 26, where Jesus asks, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What a tragedy it is when people allow their desire for temporary wealth to keep them from escaping eternal judgment. Friends, don't let greed keep you from God. You know, there are so many people who are so busy pursuing the mighty dollar that they scarcely give any thought to the things of God. There are also many who are so intoxicated with their desire for material comforts and possessions and luxuries that there's no room left in their hearts for any desire for God. And unfortunately, this is something that even Christians can get caught up in as well to a certain degree. Understand, dear brother or sister, that the way you use the things that God has entrusted to you That is one of the most reliable indicators there is of the state of your heart and of your spiritual condition. Money is something that makes a great tool, but a horrible God. 
God's given us money as a way of graciously providing for our needs. And also, so that we can steward it for the glory of his name and the advance of his kingdom. So we're not owners of wealth, but simply stewards or managers who have been charged with the responsibility of using God's money in a way that glorifies him. And yet the temptation, of course, is to act as if it all belongs to us and begin to idolize it and use it for our purposes rather than God's. So that's why Paul warns us in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And also why Jesus instructs us in Matthew 6, 19 and 20 to lay up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. We need those reminders. And similarly, for someone who's not yet a Christian, their desire for money and their pursuit of earthly wealth often keeps them from taking any significant steps toward God. And returning to Acts 19, verse 25, that's what we see happening with Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen. We then find a description in the subsequent verses of how chaotic things became after that, resulting in something close to a riot in the city. Verse 28 records how the craftsmen were enraged and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This soon ignited an uproar throughout the city so that the whole city, verse 29 says, was filled with confusion and grabbed hold of two of Paul's companions and was trying to find Paul. And then when a Jew named Alexander tries to quiet down the crowd in order to make sure that everybody knows the Jews have no part of this, the crowd becomes even more enraged. Verse, 20, uh, verse 34 records, but when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours... They all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine chanting something or or crying out something for two whole hours? And these people didn't even have Twitter and other social media to stir them up into this frenzy. And this was wild. And I believe the reason things got so heated wasn't just because of blind delirium although that was undoubtedly part of it, but even more fundamentally, it was because of the profound effect that Paul's missionary activities was having on Ephesian society. The gospel message of Jesus was having such an enormous impact on people's lives that it was literally threatening some aspects of the local economy, the ones that revolved around the worship of Artemis. So I believe we should view the radical opposition recorded in Acts 19 as a testimony to the radical change brought about by the gospel and to just how radical that change was. Again, the gospel is a radical message that produces radical change that often provokes radical opposition. Think back for a moment to what Paul's opponents said about him and his missionary companions back in Acts 17.6. They said that these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. There you have it. From the lips of Paul's opponents, 
no less. Paul's ministry of telling people about Jesus was turning the world upside down. And that's what was happening here in Ephesus. The gospel was turning the city of Ephesus upside down. And a lot of people didn't like it. You know, I'm reminded of an awakening that took place in Wales in 1904, 1905, and specifically of the effect that that awakening had on Welsh society. One of the most prominent leaders in this awakening was a young man named Evan Roberts. Leading up to the awakening, Roberts was known to spend long hours of both the day and night praying. He would typically wake up at 1 a.m. to be, quote, taken up into divine fellowship and would continue praying until 5 a.m. And then after sleeping for four hours, he would wake up again at 9 a.m. and continue in prayer until noon. And eventually, in 1904, Roberts experienced something of a, a breakthrough in prayer. He prayed for an awakening and desperately cried out to the Lord, bend me. Bend me. And God did. God took this young 26-year-old guy and filled him with unusual spiritual passion and used him to spread awakenings throughout many of the towns in Wales. And eventually, because of Roberts and, and some other key figures of this awakening, the, the awakening caught on in the whole territory of Wales, so that as many as 100,000 Welsh may have been converted. And not surprisingly, it had a profound effect on society. Political meetings were canceled. Sporting events were canceled. Theaters were closed down. Bars and casinos lost their customers. Not only that, but debtors paid their debts. Denominational barriers were broken down. Crime rates were radically reduced. And racial barriers began to crumble. Friends, the gospel changes everything. When the gospel really begins to gain traction among the people of a society, every aspect of that society is affected. Changed hearts result in changed lives. And changed lives result in changed societies. This is documented in a very helpful way in a book I've been reading lately called How Christianity Transformed the World by a British author named Sharon James. This book was written in response to those today who claim that Christianity has done more harm than good to our world. However, as Sharon James argues, even though there are certainly historical examples of things being done in the name of Christianity that have been harmful, Christians have actually been on the front lines of much of the positive social change that's taken place over the past 2,000 years. For example, in the area of freedom, the Bible's teaching that all human beings 
have been created in the image of God means that every individual has inherent value and dignity and worth. This understanding has led many Christians throughout history to risk their careers, reputations, and lives in the fight against slavery and eventually to play a key role in abolishing the practice of slavery in both Britain and America in the 1800s. Now keep in mind that slavery is something that's been practiced for almost as long as the human race has existed. Yet where else have you ever heard of any society voluntarily freeing its own slaves? Did the Babylonian Empire do that? Or the Assyrian Empire? Or the Persian Empire? Or the Greek or Roman Empires? No. Rather, it's the societies that have been influenced by Christianity that have eventually abolished slavery. Similarly, it's also been these same societies that have the least oppressive governments in general, even today. I mean, just look at a current world map. The freest countries on the planet are those that have been most influenced by Christianity and Christian ideals. Another example Shannon James discusses is the dignity of women. Throughout human history, women have been almost universally oppressed. They've had few, if any, rights and have usually been treated like property rather than people. Many societies have allowed men to beat their wives or even kill their wives without any legal consequences. Uh, this was, for example, the case in the Roman Empire where the husband, legally speaking, owned his wife and had the authority to do basically as he pleased with her, even to the point of inflicting capital punishment. And yet Christianity had a seismic impact on the way women were treated in the Roman Empire, giving women legal protections and rights and the dignity that's rightly bestowed on all people as those, again, who have been created in the image of God. And then this pattern of upholding the dignity of women has also continued throughout church history. Even though Christian missionaries of the past several hundred years are often criticized for the effects they've had on the cultures to which they've gone, one thing that can't be denied is that missionaries have done wonders for the status and dignity of women in those societies. Let's not forget, it was Christians who put an end to the practice in India of forcing widows to burn themselves on the funeral pyres of their husbands. And Christians who have opposed the oppression of women through child marriage. And Christians who have opposed female genital mutilation. And Christians who have insisted on educating women. Again, just look at the world map. The countries today in which women have the most legal rights and protections are those most influenced by Christianity. And so those are just two examples of, uh, that Sharon James cites in her book. And since I don't really have time to summarize even uh, the, the other positive ways she outlines in which Christianity has transformed the world, I'll just list them briefly for you. Ways in which Christians have transformed the world include government recognition of human rights, adherence to the rule of law and the curbing of tyrannical power, 
respect for the sanctity of all human life, unprecedented levels of philanthropy and compassion for those in need, monumental breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine, a worldwide movement to bring modern health care to underprivileged areas of the world, manifesting itself in the stunning number of hospitals founded by Christians, universal education for people, regardless of gender or social status, a recognition of the inerrant dignity of work and the importance of a good work ethic. And then principles, finally, that have led to free and prosperous national economies rather than oppressive and impoverished economies. So Christians have been at the very forefront of all of these positive social changes in the world. In many cases, even the driving force behind them, as Sharon James carefully documents in her book. I'm just saying this. I'm just making these claims. She documents it. So again, the gospel is a radical message that produces radical change. First in individuals and then spilling over into entire societies. And I believe it's important to note that the way this change is brought about isn't through external coercion, but rather by changing people's hearts. That is the Christian way. I think we could even say that is the distinctly Christian way. I mean, just think about Acts 19. Verse 20 tells us that these changes came about in Ephesus because the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So notice that Paul didn't try to start a citywide petition or lobby city officials to forcibly ban idol worship. Rather, his focus was on telling people about Jesus and allowing the gospel to have an effect on their hearts. Paul unleashed the gospel on the city of Ephesus, and it resulted in monumental change. Now, to be clear, there is a place for various forms of political engagement, uh, in today's society, I'd even say that Christians have a moral obligation to be good stewards of this very unique privilege we have, and if you consider human history as a, as a whole, of voting. We actually get to do that. And we may also choose to participate in various forms of uh, public demonstration. However, our focus should be on the gospel and on seeing the gospel change people's hearts. Political engagement is important, but the gospel, seeing hearts changed, that's what's central. Listen, laws, legislation, won't change people's hearts. Even Supreme Court decisions won't change people's hearts, as is especially clear in our present situation. Only Jesus can change people's hearts. And he does it through the gospel. And when hearts are changed, everything else follows. Changed hearts result in changed lives. Changed lives result in changed societies, which, yes, includes changed laws eventually. And for any here who are not yet Christians, 
me say that God doesn't just want to bring change to society in general. He wants to change you in a wonderful way. You know, there are so many theories out there about how to experience positive change in your life. So many books that have been published and podcasts that have been created and articles that have been written that offer what's commonly known as self-help advice. But really, there's no way we can help ourselves in the sense of bringing true, heart-level, meaningful change to our lives. We need God to help us and change us. And the way he does that is through the gospel. That is, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible tells us that we've sinned against God. And not only that, but we're actually sinners by nature. And not only that, but that our sins have alienated us from this holy God and made us deserving of God's judgment. That's what we deserve. And yet, in his astonishing grace toward us, and because of his love that is so amazing, God didn't leave us in our wretched condition. Instead, he sent us a Savior in the person of Jesus. Jesus became a human being, essentially becoming one of us so that he could rescue us. And the way he accomplished that rescue was by dying on the cross to pay for our sins. Understand that Jesus didn't just die on the cross as a, a victim of random circumstances, but rather voluntarily suffered the penalty for sin that we deserved. God's judgment was poured out on him so it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. That's what happened on the cross. And thankfully, though, that's not the end of the story because three days after Jesus died, he resurrected from the dead with the result that he now stands ready to save everyone who will put their trust in him. And that rescue involves him not only forgiving our sins, but also changing our hearts so that we become new people with new desires, new priorities, a totally new perspective on life. Jesus takes everything that's wrong and broken in our lives and puts it all back together, effectively restoring the image of God within us that's been defaced. We become what we were always meant to be and eventually are able to enjoy the all-surpassing pleasures of God in his presence for all eternity. And you know the, the wonderful thing about the gospel is that it can change anyone's heart. If you have some time this afternoon, go home and look up the name Charles Jeffries. You remember the confrontations I told you about at the beginning between the Salvation Army and the Skeleton Army? Well, Charles Jeffries was a member of the Skeleton Army and, in fact, had attained the rank of lieutenant. He had personally assaulted several Salvation Army members and had become quite well known for his disruptive activities during Salvation Army meetings. Uh, on one occasion, 
It's written that he, he even jumped on the back of this Salvation Army leader as this leader was marching down the street. Charles Jeffries jumped on the guy's back, put down his top hat over the man's eyes, and beat his hat like a drum and used his own legs as goads to, to drive this guy down the street. Uh, so, I mean, Charles Jeffries was a, he was a character. Yet guess what happened to Charles Jeffries? Well, eventually, the gospel got a hold of this man's heart. As a result, he left the skeleton army and joined the ranks of the Salvation Army. Of course, he was disavowed by all of his old skeleton army friends, but it didn't matter. He then devoted the rest of his life to propagating the very gospel that he had once so violently opposed. He went to the Salvation Army Training College and started preaching the gospel in the streets. Uh, One record is that as many as 300 people came to faith uh, throughout a seven-month period of Charles Jeffress' street preaching. And then later he traveled the world in the ranks of the Salvation Army, uh, starting churches and organizing different Christian initiatives and eventually rising to the, the rank of the third highest officer in the entire Salvation Army. Friends, the gospel is indeed a radical message that produces radical change. Not just in society in general, but even in the hearts of the very individuals who seem furthest from God. Therefore, while many people in today's society might seek to see their opponents canceled, Christians should seek to see their opponents saved.